0: So uh, we're glad you're here. Uh, we do do things a little differently here at Cornerstone. Uh, essentially, I, I told the worship guys, I said, listen, I need to I need to get up earlier because sometimes worship helps prepare our hearts for for the word. And at other times, I feel like we need the word to prepare our hearts for for worship. So this morning, why don't you go ahead and grab your Bible. We are in the book of James. We're tracking through in a series here, examining a very practical book. There are those out there who would say, you know what, uh, you know, preaching through the text of the Bible. That's great and all every now and then. But I really need something for my life. Uh, if you've been sitting here for a couple weeks now and you've been listening to James, I don't know what James is about if it's not about your life. Uh, namely, he jumped straight in. He took on the hardest of maybe all challenges of our life, and that is dealing with our problems, dealing with the trials that we face, dealing with the hard, tough issues, and saying, how, how do we handle it as believers? How do we handle it if we name the name of Christ? And, and that fits well within this whole theme of the book that we laid out at the very beginning, and we did that with a question, is your faith a fraud? The book of James seeks to answer that question. And help us personally answer that question. Is our faith legitimate? I mean, are we in love with Jesus? Or do we just call ourselves Christians? Do we just say we're believers? Yeah, we've gone to church our whole life, etc. Now, James really nails us down. My mentor, a pastor in Texas, he said, you know what? Uh, You want to call the church? Preach James. Because people start to realize that doesn't look like me. And and chapter 2 doesn't look like me. Well, I don't really look like chapter 3. And so he starts off here with the hardest of issues, and we have to ask ourselves, I mean, what do we do when we encounter various trials, when we encounter all kinds of things that this world is throwing at us? What does our life look like? Does it look like what James says it should look like? And that's what we've been tracking through for several weeks here. And he kind of just expands that thought, and he helps us walk through, what do we do? When we face the trials, what should our attitude be? What should the big picture thought in our mind be? How should we how should we respond to it personally down here? How should we respond to it in relationship to God? Like, is God involved in this, and how is he involved? Is he doing something? Is he not doing something? To what degree is he doing something? And, and we came down uh, all the way through 9 and 12, and, and he says, listen, as we persevere through, there's a reward for us as you understand that God is building endurance. He's using whatever trials you face to to grow you, to strengthen you, to sanctify you, to prepare you for, for being joint heirs with Jesus one day eternally in heaven. All right? he, he's making you to look more like his son. And his son carried a cross. There will be crosses in our life. There will be difficulties in our life. And so he, he tells us, he teaches us, he educates us on how some of that stuff that doesn't seem so happy, nice, and you know, uh, colorful in our lives. How those... Dark keys on the piano, how they fit to make beautiful music for us. We saw last time in uh, thirteen through eighteen that uh, the author felt led to make sure we understand completely, lest anyone go astray. In when they face their temptation, when they face their trials of various kinds, and whatever it is that maybe you're facing. And, and we start to slide not in the path of righteousness and we start to not strengthen our faith, but we start to slide maybe off the other way. And it turns from a, from a trial, approving of our faith to really attempting of our faith. And, and sometimes we start sliding towards failure. He says we got to be very careful that as you go into sin, which, which can happen, that you don't turn around and say, God, if you're doing something in this whole process of strengthening me, then isn't it your fault that now i failed In this trial and now I've ended up in sin not in strength in regards to my faith and and James cleared that up for us last week in the midst of doing that in the midst of telling us that listen we're really the problem when it comes to us falling into sin and God is not at fault in any way he's untouchable by evil right Uh, as he was clarifying that that tremendous theological point for us we, we have these two verses. 14, 15, read them again. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. And as that's a part of the overall point last week that it's that it's our own lust. Remember, remember that he says by our own lust. That's the direct preposition. It's by. It's directly by our own lust, our own unique lust. It's different for you. It's different for me. Whatever, whatever our flavor might be that attracts us, that entices us, it's different for each of us. But we're the direct culprit. God, he says, is not even indirectly implicated. He points the finger at us. And in, in doing that, he gives us this process. And I skipped over it last week for a couple reasons because the process wasn't the main point the process was sort of an extra we get. And that happens a lot in Scripture, doesn't it? That as the author is arguing their point, as the author is teaching towards a singular point, namely that God is not to blame, that it is our own lust that is to blame, he gives us here in in these two verses really an expanded understanding of how it is our fault and what happens to lead us to the road from temptation to sin. Like, what does that process look like? And I said last week, I don't want to get caught up there, but it's worth coming back to. And so this week, we're coming back. It's worth coming back to, and it's worth expanding a little bit. And seeing, okay, what can we do with those two verses? What can we learn from the process? Right? You've heard me quote G.I. Joe before. I'll do it again. I don't know a better illustration. G.I. Joe, at the end of every one of his cartoons, he would... Give the little kids a moral lesson. He would always say the same thing. He would teach them about a little something, like, what do you do if you get punched in the nose and you're bleeding all over yourself? How do you stop the bleeding? Do you lean forward pinch, lean back pinch, hop on one leg, shove a bunch of cotton balls up there? What do you do? I I don't exactly remember what he said uh, because I was like, man, that's a lot of blood. and It's kind of an odd thought for kids. But anyway... Uh, at the end of every one of those little moral lessons, G.I. Joe would always say the same thing. If you were a G.I. Joe fan growing up, he, he always ended the cartoon saying the same thing. Kids, now you know, and knowing is half the battle. That's kind of how I feel about, about this, little, this little section. These two bonus verses we get here as the author makes his point that it's, it's not God. We've got to point the finger at us, and we're responsible. We need to own it. Now, just knowing a little more about this process... It's going to help us tremendously. Because, I mean, I hope you're here this morning in regard to sin and temptation saying, I don't I don't want to go that route. I want to go the route that James intends for the righteous to go and that God intends for the righteous to go. And that's the route of, of sanctification and strengthening in my faith so that my faith will be proved under the pressure and under the weight of whatever the various trial there is. And as I endure, I'm strengthened. As I'm strengthened, it it's proof that I... I am that I am in love with Jesus. I'm not, I'm not just a fraud. I'm not here for the wrong reasons. So I hope this morning as you come, you say, you know what? I'm glad we're stopping with these couple verses and we're examining the process because maybe just if I get how this, this works in my heart, because I go through it all the time, you do as well. Maybe if I get this process just a little better, I can go, I can go the path of righteousness and not the path of temptation to sin. Yeah, so that's our goal this morning. Here's what he says. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Verse 13. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one, that's us, is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. I briefly mentioned this last week, but I want you to get this picture that the author paints. Carried away and enticed. They're kind of like, it's kind of like fishing terms here okay if you get the if you get the picture of the christian minding his own business going down the path of righteousness the author paints this portrait that our own lust casts this hook into our path and the hook doesn't look like a hook now does it does the hook ever look like a hook to a fish no we cleverly disguise it we make it look what we make it look attractive we make it look yummy. We make it look tasty. We make it look like it would be satisfying. So when you throw that that hook out to the fish, you don't just throw a hook. Fish will walk by and that say, that's, that's a hook. And why would, I, why would I bite that? Satan, the great tempter, he's he's not foolish. He knows exactly what he's doing. And so he throws attractive bait out to us. And here's the goal. So that when the Christian on his path to righteousness happens by, we get we get the picture of an animal being carried away. It's it's sort of like a trap. It's the picture of of the carrot dangling, or on. Un- the bait underneath that little cage with the little stick that you used to prop up when you were a kid, right? And then you're hiding in the woods and you yank it out. It looks inviting. And it, it entices us. It says, hey, come, come this way. Doesn't this look good? And it draws us away. It carries us away from the path we were on, right? So you're walking this way. You're doing your deal. You're walking with the Lord. And, and you see what has been cast in front of you. And it, it carries you away. It carries you away from the path of righteousness. And as it, as it gets your attention, the portrait that James paints here is that it, it, it's waving you in. It not only carries you away, but it beckons you in. Is that what happens? That's how it looks in my life. My attention from the straight and narrow gets, gets distracted by something. Usually, it's not something repulsive to me. It's something that is attractive. It's something that sparks my interest. It's something that my flesh, that my old nature is drawn to, that my old habits and the old man recognize. And it gets my attention. It carries me away from the path I'm on. And then once it has my attention, it further entices me. And it's all done by my own lust. He continues the process. Then when lust has conceived, he moves from really a hunting-fishing picture here to to a, a birth picture. Watch this. Then when lust has conceived, the seed has been sown, so to speak. Yeah? It gives birth. You notice the process here. Babies just don't come overnight. Right, Kelly? It mean, take a long time. Babies have to bake in there for like nine months or so, give or take a few weeks. It's a long process, ladies. It's a long process, gentlemen. I think I think James is saying something here to us that it's not it's not an overnight deal. Is it casting crowns that has a song out? Uh, it's a slow fade. Is that right, Ricky? Slow fade? Is it casting crowns? Yeah, it's a slow fade. When we give ourselves away, it's it's the song about how, how it doesn't just happen overnight. It's not just a trip and fall into sin. There's a conception that happens. There's a growth. There's an incubation period, if you will. When lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, he's wise here to give us the end result. When sin itself is accomplished, it brings forth, or you could say it births something else death, which is a huge irony. Uh, this passage should sound familiar to you. It's interesting to me that James, in regard to our desires, our desires that pull us off the path of righteousness, that attract us towards something, something other than holiness, he uses here to describe these desires, he uses the word lust. Uh, it's a sexual term, right? In our minds, it's a it's a sexual term, but that's not all that it is. But I think it's it's very interesting that he chooses that word. He could have just said Desire. He could he could have used a different word, perhaps, but I, I think there's a reason that he that he uses this erotic word, this taboo word, this word that will grab our attention that says more than just desire. Uh, I immediately thought of Proverbs. Flip back with me if you have your Bible to the book of Proverbs. I want to show you a couple passages here because the author intends for us to understand. This drawing away, this carrying away, and this enticing in a sexual sense. Maybe it's because our lusts as humans, sexually, we can all identify with that process. Maybe it's because the process is, in fact, so dangerous. Maybe it's because that process of lust is so deceiving. Maybe it's because of the attractiveness. Maybe it's because it doesn't look like a hook. But Proverbs gives us some great wisdom and I think parallels exactly what James is getting out here. Now, as we read these passages in James uh, or in Proverbs, uh, I'm going to start in Proverbs 5, and I'm just going to read a couple lengthy passages here to you. I don't want you to think of them strictly in terms of sexuality. It's easy to do that. That's what, that's what the, the author has intended here in Proverbs. But because James uses lustfulness, that sexual idea, to equate to our sinfulness and our tempting towards sin, I want you to go back to now this passage on our sexual sin, okay? And I want you to reapply it now to James. So so listen, not just with sexual temptation in mind. Listen with whatever Whatever your lust of choice is, maybe it's a lust towards materialism. Maybe it's that, that bracelet you saw, ladies, in the mall. Maybe it's that car, uh, guys, you saw driving down the road. Maybe it's that house you want. Maybe it's that, those clothes you want. Maybe it's that st- whatever it is. Whatever that enticement is taking you towards, keep that in mind as we read through and recognize the process. Recognize the beauty. Recognize the trickery. But don't miss the pain in the end. Watch this. Proverbs 5. My son, give attention to my wisdom. Incline your ear to understanding that you may observe discretion and your lips may reserve knowledge. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey. Let's equate that to the temptation. Let's equate that to what's attempting to carry us away and entice us. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and smoother than oil is her speech. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways are unstable. She does not know it. Now then, my sons, listen, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near Don't even go near the door of her house. Or, most assuredly, you will give your vigor to others and your years to the cruel one and strangers will be filled with your strength and your hard-earned goods will go to the house of an alien and you groan at your final end. It's not a happy ending. When your flesh and your body are consumed and you say, How is it that I have hated instruction and my heart spurned reproof? I have not listened to the voice of my teachers, nor inclined my ear to my instructors. I was almost in utter ruin. Notice where? In the midst of the assembly and the congregation. Flip over a couple chapters. Chapter 7. My son, keep my words and treasure my commandments within you. Keep my commandments and live in my teaching as the apple of your Bind them on your fingers. Are you noticing some answers here? Some pleas towards righteousness. Okay. Some directions on how not to go the wrong path. He's given it to us. Don't miss it. Keep my commandments. Live in my teachings as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you're my sister. Keep it close. And call understanding your intimate friend. That they may keep you from an adulteress. From the foreigner who flatters with her words. It's not unattractive. It's flattering. For at the window of my house, I looked out through my lattice. Uh, this is, this is an eerie passage. As I, I read it sometimes, I just, I just put myself as the naive guy that he's about to mention here. I put myself as the naive guy. That wisdom is, is peering out at, maybe through the windows of heaven. And I plug in whatever it is my personal sin is here. Do, do that. For at the window of my house, I looked out through my lattice and I saw among the naive and discerned among the youths, a young man lacking sense, passing through the street near her corner. And he takes the way to her house in the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night, in the darkness. Not not a good time. And behold, a woman comes to meet him. Surprise, surprise. Dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart. She is boisterous and rebellious. Her feet do not remain at home. She is now in the streets, now in the squares and lurks by every corner. So she seizes him And kisses him and with a brazen face, she says this to him. I I was due to offer peace offerings. Today I have paid my vows. Therefore, I have come out to meet you, to seek your presence earnestly. And I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, with colored linens of Egypt. I have sprinkled my bed with myrrh and aloes and cinnamon. Come, let us drink our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with caresses. My husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. In fact, he's taken a big bag of money with him. And at the full moon, he will come home again. Not anytime soon. With her many persuasions, she entices him. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. Suddenly, suddenly. (laughs) What a great word. Suddenly, he follows her. And here's what we look like. Heading down the path from temptation to sin, as sin turns into death, here's what we look like. We look as an ox to slaughter, or as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool, until an arrow pierces through our liver, as a bird hastens to the snare, so he does not know that it will cost him. His life. Now therefore, my sons, listen. Pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside. James would say, be carried away. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many, 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 are the victims she has cast down? Is there strength in the tempter? Absolutely. Is there strength in the temptation? Absolutely. Mark Twain said that um, <laughs> there are several practical measures that you can that you can go through against temptation, but the surest, he said, is cowardice. Am I good? Just be a coward. Just run away. For many are the victims she has cast down, and numerous are all her slain. Her house is the way to Sheol, descending to the chambers of death. It's enticing. It's alluring. It's cleverly disguised. The hook is not obvious. It looks attractive to us. It seems to be satisfying to us. And that's that's the danger, isn't it? That's the danger. As we look at the temptation, we don't see the pain in the end. We don't see that it goes to Sheol. We don't see the pain that will come. We know that there's at least temporary joy. We know that there's at least temporary satisfaction. Our lust, our desire, that emotion, it merges then it merges then with our mind. And there's an opportunity for us to be deceived. Listen to what John Piper said in regard to the power of sin. He said, Sin, it gets its power by persuading me to believe that I will be more happy if I follow it. Isn't that right? Whatever it is. It persuades me to believe that I will be more happy if I follow it. The power of all temptation is the prospect that we will be happier, we will be more satisfied. It's our emotions challenging our mind and saying, listen, won't this be good? Surely we will not die. I mean, won't we in fact be happier? And now our our emotions and our mind coupled together have to face our will. And our will stands there as like this checkpoint to say, Am I going to walk to the, to the death or am I going to flee to the path of righteousness? It's a picture of lust. It's a strong picture. There's a story in Joshua 7. You can flip back for just a moment. I'll briefly give it to you. Story in Joshua 7. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua Joshua leads the nation of Israel out of, uh, out of uh, the wilderness and into the promised land. And they've got to fight for the land. They go in. They fight Jericho. They do a good job. They, uh, they're in, in a sense, uh, well, they're in fact undefeated in all their military uh, battles. Until they, face a, uh, until they face a group that um, really is no match for them. In AI, and uh, God gives them the freedom to go into AI on their own terms, and what happens is um, they end up, well, they end up, uh, they end up getting whooped. God gives them an opportunity to to replay that battle, and they are successful. But in the midst of this whole story, something interesting happens. God tells them that as they go into Jericho they're not supposed to take anything they're supposed to burn it all up but this one guy he decides that he's going to keep some of the plunder for himself his name's Achan and as he does this he essentially becomes the thorn in the flesh of the nation of Israel so in the next battle now Israel gets whooped that's the short story of it they lose They lose for many reasons, but the the reason that's given as the divine reason is that Israel has acted unfaithfully. They messed up back here. They weren't faithful to what God had called them to do. And Achan, he took stuff that he wasn't supposed to take and he hid it in his tent. And he's just just hiding his sin. He's got his sin covered up in his tent. And uh, he thinks he's gotten away with it. Well, now Israel goes into their next battle and they lose terribly. They come back. Everybody's wondering what happened here. Um, Why did we lose? I thought God was with us. Er, You know, Joshua's uh, depressed now, and the whole nation is starting to question what's going on. Why don't we just go back to Egypt? The whole deal they gave Moses, and uh, we find out that it's because there's sin in the camp, right? So through a series of uh, investigations here, through God narrowing it down, because this guy never comes forward. It's interesting. Uh, it's announced that there is sin in the camp and the guy never volunteers that, yeah, it was me. He just, he just hangs out as if to say, let's see if it's me. Maybe it's somebody else. Maybe it's not, it's not that thing that I did. Maybe it's somebody else. And so he just hides out. He just hangs out. And uh, they go through this process and they narrow it down from the nation to a tribe, from the tribe to a family and a family to a man. And now you've got, you've got Achan standing before Joshua and the whole camp all nation of Israel just coming off of this horrific loss. And they've got, the, they've got the reason. It's the sin. And here's the man. Joshua 7, verse 19. So Joshua said to Achan, My son, I implore you, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give praise to him, and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. So Achan answered Joshua and said, Truly I have sinned against the Lord. The God of Israel. And this is what I did. Now, here's why I want you to see this passage. This is the process. It's an it's a amazing picture into your heart and into my heart. Here's how it works. How do we go from temptation to sin? Watch this. He spells it out. When I saw among the spoil, circle the word saw, step one. Here's what he saw. Some ugly, hideous thing sitting over in the corner all dusty and trashy in that one house that we burned? No, that's not what he says. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight. He saw it. He saw it It was beautiful. Look what happens next. Then I coveted. Circle the word covenant. I coveted them. Step two. And then I, what's your next verb? I took them, step three, and behold, they are now concealed or hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath it. See the process? It's our process. It's what James is trying to help us to understand. It's that little bit of knowledge that if we understand how this deal works, maybe we can, maybe we can stop it somewhere. Maybe we can draw the line. He saw it. It was attractive. It was enticing. It carried him away in his his emotions, in his mind. It twisted his will so that his will was not the will of God. His will was was his own improvement. It was his self. And so what? Tweaked his will enough to where his actions, he took it. He took it. And he didn't hold on to it, enjoy it for a moment, and then confess it up and get rid of it. Um, He hid it. (laughs) He hid it. As very often we do. We bury it. We keep it safe. It's our own little deal over here. Nobody knows about it. Hidden away. We keep it safe. He says, I buried it. Joshua wisely in verse 22. Look at what they do. What should be our response to when we get that far in the process? Here's the response. So Joshua sent messengers and in a couple of weeks, they uh, they made their way to Achan's house and they looked around a little bit. Now, what does it say? And they ran. Why? Because they've experienced the pain of temptation to sin through this one guy's actions. The nation got whooped. So what happens? Joshua says, "Go and you get guys running to that guy's tent." So they ran. To the tent. And behold, it was concealed in his tent with silver underneath it. They took it from inside the tent and they brought them to Joshua and to all the sons of Israel. They exposed it. They exposed it. They laid it out there. They confessed it. And they poured them out. Here's here's the key phrase. Before the Lord. Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the sons of Zerah, the silver, the mantle, the bar gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys. You tell me if there's there's any, uh, any joy in the end here. You tell me if there's a pleasant end to that alluring, to that carrying away, to that enticement, to that beauty at the start. You tell me how it ends up here. His oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, for goodness sake, and in his tent and all that belonged to him. And they brought them up to the Valley of Achor literally means trouble in the Hebrew. Joshua said this. Why have you troubled us? It's a play on words in the Hebrew. Called the Valley of Achor now. Why have you troubled? Accord us. The Lord will accord you this day, and all Israel. They stoned them with stones. And they then they burned burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. They raised over them a great heap of stones that stands to this day. And the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of Trouble to this day. Are there consequences? Is it an an enticing process? Absolutely. So I've showed it to you in a few different places here. And you all get the process. You identify with the process. It's the process you go through. It's the process I go through. And it's pretty complicated and it's pretty, it's pretty heady. And we could, we could examine a little more on like, all right, when does, our, when does our mind and our will and emotions, how do they all get confused and w- what happens and who's, where is it to blame and all that. And it's, it's crazy. Uh, part of the difficulty is that my my struggles are not your struggles and it, and it affects you differently and it, and it works on your heart and your mind and your will differently, etc., but where can we draw the line? I mean, that has to be, we, we got to come to the end of this and say, okay, great. I understand a little bit better how it works, but where is there a place where we can draw the line? Now, there are some practical answers to this, right? I mean, we could spend the rest of our time, we could spend several more weeks talking about how can we practically draw a line in our life so that we go the route of sanctification and not the route towards sin. Where do we, in this process of seeing, it's, it's very attractive, Uh, to taking, embracing, and hiding it out. Where in that process do we break it? We could talk about some very practical ways to do that. Spurgeon uh, does a great job of this. In in one of his sermons, he said, uh, whatever is setting you in, uh, uh, whatever settings you are in when you fall, he says, just avoid them. Uh, Just practical advice. Whatever props you have that support you in your sin, he says, eliminate them. And he said, whatever people you tend to be hanging around with when you do sin, avoid them. All right, so just very practical things. We could talk about all that. We could, we could talk about uh, just practical measures, like uh, getting deeper into the Word. We could talk about your quiet time. We could talk about a lot of different things. I, I want to I go this route, okay? I just want to give you the answer that I think we've been giving you since Cornerstone started four years ago and some change, okay? And the answer is God sounds trite the answer is more of a loving god more of our holy just and loving god it's it's more of him and less of us i mean as i was praying through this i said okay god there's a there's a hundred different directions i could go in i could i could kind of work through the practical stuff here what do you want what do you want us the takeaway to be what do you want the line in the sand to be for us what do you want it what do you want it to be this Sunday? Although another Sunday might be something different, and this was it—that from the point of our desire, that seeing, and our emotions start to work on our mind to get our mind in agreement to hit our will, so that we can tweak our will, not from, not into righteousness, but towards whatever selfish sinfulness we want. That place where our emotions and our mind come together. I think, I think, we've got to. We've got to tell the truth. We've got to tell the truth. There's a lie in this process. Remember what John Piper said? I think he's right on target. The lie is that we're going to be happier if we if we go that way. We're going to be satisfied. We're going to be we're going to be better off. I think that lie is where we need to attack. It's the lie, perhaps, maybe you could say it this way, that this life is about me. It's more about me than it is about God. It's more about satisfying me, me being happy, than God's glory. Now, none of us would say that. None of us would want that to happen. But I think that's the lie we have to attack. I think that's the lie you have to attack. How do we attack it? You attack it with truth. You attack all lies with truth. What is the truth? The truth is that in the end, there's more pain than there is pleasure. The truth is that there's a hook underneath the beautiful bait. The truth is, once we're hooked, we can't just dabble in it and then jump off the hook. You hook a fish, nine times out of ten, he's hooked. And it leads to his death, man. But some of us are convinced that We don't have to stay hooked. We can just kind of go a little bit. But that's not the story that James paints. That's not the picture that Proverbs paints. That's not the picture that Jesus paints when he deals with temptation. It's it's a leading to death that is not easily walked away from. It is a seriousness that this ought to be treated with. So here's the truth for the lie. The truth is that you don't get what you think you got. Isn't that pretty basic? That you're not going to get what you think you're going to get. Primarily, here's the truth that I think we need God and His glory and His love are what satisfies us greater than any other attractive temptation. Desire, Fulfillment This would be nice This would be good This would make me happy This would satisfy me The truth is The one truth that I think covers all those lies Is that God is the only satisfying Thing Person In all of our understanding So again This may be a simple or trite answer But I think the answer is More God in more of me out. It's the John three, right? He must increase. I must decrease because the more that that God is in there, when when that when that hook is baited, and I I see it with more spirit in me, I'm able to deal more than just if I'm walking not in the spirit, walking on my own. So here's what we're going to do. You guys are going to come back up. They're going, to, uh, they're going to sing a song for us here called More. Uh, I think it hits right on where I, where I would like your heart to go. I'm just going to let you stay seated for this next song. We're going to do a couple songs after that and then we'll be done. But guys, you are in that process somewhere in some facet of your life. We all are. Right? Here's the prayer I want you to be praying as they sing, as you listen to this song. Uh, I want the prayer of our hearts to be, Lord, more of you absorbing more of that space that gets filled up with stuff that doesn't need to be there. God, take over more real estate in my heart so that there's not a place that sin can land. So there's there's not a space that temptation can fill in my heart. God, take up residence in me let your spirit dwell so intensely and so obvious in me that as i'm walking and the bait is thrown right across my path i understand that it that it's not just it's not just about the moment it's not just about my happiness in in this satisfying of immediacy it's not just about the the material thing there's there's more at stake here there's more at stake so let's pray God, we we have our own stuff. We have our own stuff, and I don't know what I don't know what theirs is. I know what mine is. And it's uh, it's so obvious and so simple as we talk about it here, and it makes so much sense. Just this whole process, but in the heat of the moment, Lord, it's uh. It's never as easy. It's never as dangerous looking. It's never as hideous or sinful looking. It never looks as serious. God, I ask you to do only what you can do in dealing with our heart. Allow... Give us the ability, Father, give us just give us just the abandonment this morning to allow the Holy Spirit to come through our heart with that fine tooth comb and remove all remove all those impurities. And Lord, we pray that you would take up residence in our heart. Full residence. Not just weekends, not just Sundays. Take a full residence. Fill all the space that the junk tries to creep in and make its home. Give us wisdom. Oh, we've come here this morning because we want to be different as we leave. So for this next song, Lord, speak speak to our hearts. Point out those things. Point out those things. We're, we're not here, as we sang earlier, to be entertained. We're not here. We're not here to walk away um, the same. We're here to be made into the likeness of Jesus, our Savior. Do that in our hearts. Holy Spirit, work in our hearts right now. Amen.